So I just want to go ahead and cover because we did not get to read uh, five and six, but there are some things that happen that are kind of important. Um, so we have an escalating tension in chapter five first. You have um, Aaron and Moses go to Pharaoh and they say, hey, let, let my people go. The Lord of Israel has said. And so Pharaoh, in the hardness of his heart, he commands the Israelites to do more work without providing the, the materials necessary to do those works. So they were building bricks and they needed hay or straw. And so um, in the hardness of his heart, he's like, okay, I will no longer be providing the straw. You go out and get it yourself, but you must still meet the quota of bricks that you have to create. And so this caused major tension. And so you just see the tension building here in, the, in chapter five. Ultimately, the Israelites are just getting mistreated more and more. Um, Aaron and Moses are seeing the issue at hand coming more and more to fruition. And then chapter six is sort of a sign of hope. God confirms the promise to his ancestors, um, uh, to Moses. And so he says, you know, I am the Lord God Almighty. I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, and I've, I will lead you. I have established my covenant, all these things, just giving this promise to Moses and Aaron that, hey, you guys, I got you. And then you have a genealogy of both Moses and Aaron. And that pretty much just summarizes uh, chapters five and six. Um, these next two chapters are actually really, really interesting because we're going to start to see uh, the theomachy, the, the which is uh, like divine combat. And it's going to be between, you know, God and the supposed gods of the Egyptians. And once we get to each plague, and they're laid out in, a, in this sort of combat-like style, once we get to these plagues, uh, we'll see uh, just how God um, has his combat with these gods and just utterly destroys and decimates them. Think of the cross and how Christ's enemy wasn't Satan, but was in fact death. And, you know, through his own death, he completely conquered death. And so in a very similar sense here with the, um, the Egyptian gods, you'll see them all being conquered slowly one by one with the culmination of the 10th of the plague. And so um, Exodus chapter 7, whenever you're ready, feel free T to read that. The Lord answered Moses, See, I've made you a god to Pharaoh. And Aaron, your brother, will be a prophet. You will speak all that I command you. In turn, your brother Aaron will tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his land. Yet I will make Pharaoh so headstrong that despite the many signs and wonders that I work in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Therefore, I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring my armies, my people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt. How the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of their midst. This, then, is what Moses and Aaron did. They did exactly as the Lord had commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 82 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The contest with Pharaoh. The staff turned to serpent. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. When Pharaoh demands of you, Produce a sign or wonder. He will say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will t turn into a serpent. Then Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it turned into a serpent. Pharaoh, in turn, summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also the magicians of Egypt, 
did the same thing by their magic arts. Each threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed their staffs. Pharaoh, however, hardened his heart and would not listen to them, just as the Lord had foretold. First plague, water turned into blood. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh was obstinate in refusing to let the people go. In the morning, just when he sets out for the water, go to Pharaoh and present yourself by the bank of the Nile, holding in your hand the staff that turned into a snake. Say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Hebrews sent me to you with the message, Let my people go to serve me in the wilderness. But as you have not yet listened, thus says the Lord, this is how you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff here in my hand, I will strike the water in the Nile, and it will be turned into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the Nile itself will stink, so that the Egyptians will be unable to drink water from the Nile. The Lord then spoke to Moses, to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the water to Egypt, its streams, its canals, its ponds, and all its supplies of water. It may become blood. There will be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in the wooden pails and stone jars. This, then, is what Moses and Aaron did, exactly as the Lord had commanded. Aaron raised his staff and struck the waters in the Nile, in full view of Pharaoh and his servants. And all the water in the Nile was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the Nile itself stank so that the Egyptians could not eat, drink water from it. There was blood throughout the land of Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same by their magic arts. So Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned away and went to his house with no concern even for this. All the Egyptians had dug round about the Nile for drinking water, since they could not drink any water from the Nile. Second plague, the fogs. Seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and tell him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go to serve me. If you refuse to let them go, I will then send a plague, plague of frogs over your territory. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up and enter into your palace and into your bedroom and onto your bed, into the house of your servants and among your people, even into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs will come up over you and your people and all your servants. Okay, um, Rochelle, you can go ahead and just uh, read chapter 8, and I'll do the explanation afterwards, whenever you're ready. Seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs, which shall come up into your bed, and into your bedchamber, and on your bed to the houses of your servants and of your people, and into the ovens and your meeting bowls, for the frogs are on you, and your people, and your people, and on your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your rod over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and cause frogs to come upon the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and brought frogs upon the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. 
Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to entreat, for you and your servants and for your people, that the frogs may be destroyed from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord your God. The frogs shall depart from you and your houses and your servants and your people that shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord concerning the frogs, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out of the houses and the courtyards and out of the fields, and they gathered them together in in heaps on the land thick. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. The third plague, gnats. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your rod and strike the dust of all the earth. Then it may become gnats throughout all the land of Egypt. And it did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the, earth, the dust of the earth. And there came gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats throughout the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So they were gnats on man and beast. And the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. The fourth plague, swarms of flies. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and wait for Pharaoh, as he goes out to the water, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. By tomorrow shall the sun be. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh, and into his servants' houses, and in all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by reason of the flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron <clears throat> and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It will not be right to do so, for we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God offerings abominable to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he will command us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. Make entreaty for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will pray to the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, for his, from his servants and from his people, tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh deal falsely again by not letting the people go sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Awesome. Thank you both for reading. So I just wanted to highlight the four Egyptian gods that were just utterly decimated here in this Exodus account. Um, well, we see that God is showing his divinity by doing such miraculous works. He's 
doing them with a purpose. He's not just randomly throwing flies or randomly throwing ants, the frogs and the, the Nile turning to blood. They all have a purpose. Everything you can see, like if you ever go to mass and you're paying attention to the different things, you'll learn that everything in mass has a purpose. So God himself is just so just so incredibly smart and so incredibly wise. And everything he does is never without purpose. And so the first um, Egyptian god is Hapi, which is the god of the Nile. And so he starts, first and foremost, the Nile was this sort of source of life for the people. You know, ancient civilizations would would build themselves, center themselves around um, around rivers. And so you have the Nile. And so these Egyptians subscribed to the Nile divinity under the name of Hapi, which is, again, the god of the Nile. And God turns this entire um, sort of source of life, in a way, into blood, you know, making it detestable for them to drink. And they, they're not able to drink. Um, and you, you can see throughout the tradition of the church that, you know, living water it's a term often used in the gospels and and even in the hebrew scriptures and it just means running water and it's often associated with you know life-giving water and so it's very important to see this because the nile is living water meaning just water that's flowing like running water um and here god's first um plague is against the nile the second one would be against haket which is the frog goddess of fertility. You know, the Egyptians um, at that time, they had so many uh, immoral uh, sexual things going on within their culture. And so God, again, attacking um, this aspect, you know, it's targeted and he does so by way of the frog. Um, and then the next two are the gnats and the flies, both of which are their own gods. And, you know, one is like a beetle god and the other one's just a fly god. And ultimately... Um, He's just so showing that he has divine power over all of these things and that he is the true God. And so you see the constant battle between the, the sorcerers, the, the wizards or um, feral servants trying to correct or fix what God did, but they, they simply can't. Um, you have the first example of Aaron's staff um, where he throws on the floor, becomes a snake, and then they throw their staffs on the floor and that also becomes a snake. However, you see that God is God and he's the Lord. And so through his power, that snake, the staff of Aaron, swallows up the other staffs and showing just he is superior. Our Lord, our God is just superior in every way, shape and form. Um, and so one thing I wanted to note here is uh, he kept saying, OK, you guys can go sacrifice, but only in the land. And then Moses says we cannot because the things we sacrifice are an abomination to 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 the Egyptians. So what is he referencing? Well, um, they have a sacrifice of bulls, you know, uh, within the Hebrew culture. And so they, they would offer these bulls as sacrifice. And you'll see that laid out when we get later into the, to the Exodus book. However, um, there is an Egyptian god, which is like the bull god, so to speak. And so it's like, it's like a cow god in a sense. And that, that'll be the, the next one on the list with the decimation of the livestock. But that'll be tomorrow. Um, and so that, that's what Moses is likely referring to here is that, you know, we're, we're sacrificing th this God. And there's also um, some theological implications of that, too. You know, this, this bull, uh, this cow is like worshipped in the Egyptian culture. Just think of how they built the golden calf. And then after that, you have um, the prescription of all these different uh, sacrifices. And one of them, of course, is bulls. Um, God sort of writing that wrong, showing that these are not divine creatures. 
that I am divine and only me. And so you sacrifice these things um, to make reparation for such uh, transgressions. And so ultimately, that, that's what the Exodus account is of now. Notice also that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. You have, it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And uh, a passive sense where um, uh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. All of these, these three mentions here sort of just play into this idea that, um, you know, divine providence is at work here, but it's also, you know, human free will at the same time. And in some mystical sense that we, we still can't even understand um, as far as how free will and God's grace works and his providence works. Um, and so you see that very actively here uh, in the story of the Exodus. And you'll continue to see it when it says Pharaoh hardens his heart, you know, it's through his greed. Um, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. That's his divine providence, you know. But at the same time, you got to understand that God is ultimately good, ultimately just. And so it's not an active hardening of the heart, as we mentioned last time. But rather, it's by way of his actions that through Pharaoh's uh, greed and his pride that he hardens his heart. And so it can be described as, you know, God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Because these miracles that God wrought are what made Pharaoh harden his heart, ultimately. And so it... it it's very it's a distinct thing to to keep in mind um but ultimately that that's just a beautiful show of you know free will and divine providence there even dating all the way back into the story of the exodus okay so next we're going to read the story of joe but i just want to highlight because we didn't get to read it yesterday chapter 28 it was a beautiful poem about um wisdom and so joe starts off um talking about how you know, man's industry searches out many things. And you see where he talks about different minerals, gold and silver and crystals and all these things. And then he continues to talk about wisdom and how there's nothing like it. And its only source is, is in God and it's truly a divine thing. And so the very last line of Job chapter 28, it's really beautiful. It says, and he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to be and to depart from evil is understanding. So, um. I'd say since we don't get to read it, you know, as you go back, meditate upon that, what it means to have true wisdom and know that it comes from God. We have Christ as, you know, the eternal incarnate wisdom um, that uh, Solomon mentions. And, you know, the, the rest of the Old Testament attests, attests to. And so it's a beautiful thing. But ultimately, you know, meditate upon the fear of the Lord. What does that mean? Not so much that, oh, you love God because you're scared of him or you do things because you're scared of him. But having this holy fear, you know, um, similar, very, very similar to how we should have a holy fear of our parents. You know, fear of disappointing them, fear of hurting them, fear of wronging them. And keeping all of that in mind when you live your Christian life, you know, when it comes to sin. And it says here in this very line, and to depart from evil. You know, sin is evil. It means to miss the mark. It it's failure, you know, it's failing God. And so have that fear of God through total avoidance of sin. So when you pray the act of contrition, depending on the one you say, actually, but um, usually at the end, it'll say, and to avoid the near occasion of sin, you know, doing so is a beautiful thing because you're cutting off sin at the root. Sin is such a slippery slope, you know, it, venial sins will just, they don't accumulate into a, a mortal sin. That's not a thing. However, um, that sort of, you know, damaging that relationship, it, it definitely takes a toll, both here and something you'll have to repay if you're ever so graced to um, be entered into purgatory then. But 
um, keeping keeping that in mind, you know, uh, you, we should always strive to just cut off sin at the source, try to um, directly oppose sin, never compromise with it, never be sort of uh, willing to, oh, well, maybe if I just do this little bit, you know it's a sin, you know it's wrong, no matter how little, oh, it's just a venial sin, so it's not that big a deal. It's like, no, unrepentant venial sin um, are still very, very, very bad, um, and we should definitely keep that in mind. But um, Maxwell, whenever you're ready, bro, uh, chapter 29, feel free to read. So chapter Job, chapter 29, a reading from the book of, of Job. Job began speaking again. If only my life one, uh, one, could once again be as it was when God watched over me. God was always with me then and gave me light as I walked through the darkness. Those were the days when I was prosperous, and the friendship of God protected my home. Almighty God was with me then, and I was surrounded by all my children. My cows and goats gave plenty of milk, and my olive trees grew in the rockiest soil. Whenever the city elders met and I took place among them, young men stepped aside as soon as they saw me, and old men stood up to show me respect. The leaders of the people would stop talking. Even the most important men kept silent. Everyone who saw me or heard of me had good things to say about what I had done. When the poor cried out, I helped them. I gave them to orphans who had nowhere to run. People who were in deepest misery praised me, and I helped widows find security. I have always acted justly and fairly. I was eyes for the blind and feet for the lame. I was like a father to the poor and took the, the trouble took tr the side of strangers in trouble. I destroyed the power of cruel men and rescued their victims. I always expected to live a long life and to die at home in comfort. I was like a tree whose roots always have water and whose branches are wet with dew. Everyone was always praising me, and my strength never failed me. When I gave advice, people were silent and listened carefully to what I said. They had nothing to add when I had finished, and my words sank in, uh, in like drops of rain. Everyone welcomed them, just as farmers welcomed rain in spring. I smiled on them when they, they uh, had lost confidence. My, cheer face, my cheerful face encouraged them. I took charge and made the decisions. I led, I led them as a king leads his troops and gave them comfort in their despair. But men younger than I make, the, make fun of me now. Their fathers have always been suggested that I would let them help my dogs guard sheep. They were a bunch of worn-out men too weak to do any work for me. They were so poor and hungry that they would gnaw dry roots at night in the wild, desolate places. They pulled up the plants of the desert and ate them, even the tasteless roots of the, of the broom tree. Everyone drove them away with shouts, as if they were shouting at thieves. They had to live in caves and holes dug in the sides of cliffs. Out in the wild, they, they howled like animals and huddled together under the bushes. A worthless bunch of nameless nobodies. They were driven out of the land. Now they come and laugh at me. 
I am nothing but a joke them. They treat me with disgust. They think they are too good for me, and even cut a bit in my face. Because God made me weak and helpless, they turn against me with all their fury. This mob attacks me head on. They send me running. They prepare their final results. They cut off my escape and try to destroy me, and there is no one to stop them. They pour through the holes in my defenses and come crashing down on top of me. I am overcome with terror. My dignity is gone like a puff of wind, and my prosperity like a cloud. Now I am about to die. There is no relief from my suffering. At night, my bones all ache. The pain that gnaws me never stops. God seizes me by my collar and twists my clothes out of shape. He throws me down in the mud. I am no better than dirt. I call to you, O God, but you never answer. And when I pray, you pay no attention. You are treating me cruelly. You persecute me with all of your power. You let the wind blow me away. You toss me about in a raging storm. I know you are taking me off to my death, to the fate in store for everyone. Why do you attack a ruined man, one who can do nothing but beg for pity? Didn't I weep with, with people in trouble and feel sorry for those in need? I hoped for happiness and light, but trouble and darkness came instead. I am torn apart by worry and pain. I have had day after day of suffering. I go about in gloom without any sunshine. I stand up in public and plead for help. My voice is as sad as and lonely as the cries of a jackal or an ostrich. My skin has turned dark. I am burning with fever. Where once I heard joyful music, now I hear only mourning and weeping. Thank you. Um, okay, so that's beautiful, beautiful chapter. So uh, that was chapter 29 and, in fact, chapter 30, which is good, in fact, because they, they really go together. Um, so chapter 29, it, it's Job sort of lamenting and remembering his past. You know, he was such a righteous man. He was so righteous that he would offer sacrifices for his kids in case that they had offended God, you know. Um, he was upright, following God's commandments, and he was prosperous. He, he was given so much. Um, and it, it's a beautiful thing. And so he's, he's pondering on these things. And now um, he, he's thinking about him in the sense that um, he's, he's relating to his former happiness with like all the respect that he had from the men compared to the current situation that he's in. And this would be chapter 30, where it says, Job shows the wonderful change of his temporal state from welfare to great cal calamity. And so it's such a beautiful contrast to witness there um, how you have this, you know, he's prosperous. He's, you know, he's an upright man. He follows God. He's sincere in his word and his works. Yet you have this great contrast in how he's now, you know, he's this suffering that he has, the scorn that he's getting from his friends. You know, the last 25, 26 chapters are them sort of berating him, accusing him um, of, all, of some kind of sin he must have committed that have wronged God. And so really these chapters do need to be together. And so I'm glad we were able to read them both. Um, and so, yeah, you just see this 
this sort of divine contrast in the life of Job and how, you know, just one minute to the next, your whole world can be falling apart. But what the beautiful thing about the Christian life and, you know, how we are is that even if we were in Job's shoes, God had never in any of those moments left us. Christ has promised he's always going to be with us. He sent down his Holy Spirit upon us so that we can, he can be with us for, for all eternity. And so that's a beautiful thing to, to think about, that no matter what suffering we go through, um, God is always with us. And Job doesn't quite realize that yet, that even in his suffering, you know, God is still there, but he, he still remains faithful. Although he's not sure of God's fidelity, he remains faithful to God because he knows that he was righteous to God. He, he was um, a true lover of God, a true believer, a true follower. And so that's something to meditate upon and something for us to, to take with us. You know, like we are blessed. We don't live in the time Job did. We have the revelation of Christ. So our suffering can be redemptive. It can bring about conversion of others. But at the same time, we're never alone. We always have Christ. Christ is always suffering with us. Um, and so that's something beautiful, beautiful to just think on. And so since yesterday we missed, which was the last chapter of Matthew, I'm going to go ahead and read it. It's, uh, it's short, and it just uh, talks on the resurrection of Jesus. Um, just so you guys can, you know, finish off Matthew, ultimately. So it says, After the Sabbath, at the first day of the week, was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, approached, rolled back the stone, and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. The guards were shaking with fear of him and became like dead men. Then the angel said to the woman in reply, Do not be afraid. I know that you are seeking Jesus, the crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has been raised from the dead, and he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Then they went their way from the tomb, fearful yet overjoyed, and ran to announce this to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them on their way and greeted them. They approached, embraced his feet, and did him homage. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, some of the guards went to the city and told the chief priests all that had happened. They assembled with the elders and took counsel. Then they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, telling them, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him while we were asleep. And if this gets to the ears of the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. The soldiers took the money as did as they were instructed, and this story was circulated among the Jews to the present day. Um, the commissioning of the disciples. The eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had ordered them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but they doubted. Then Jesus approached and said to him, All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. So just a couple beautiful historical things here. You'll see contrast to Matthew's gospel. By the time we get into Mark, there's going to be some things different um, on the resurrection account. Um, I, don't, I don't think the angels present in Mark's gospel. And many times, um, atheists love to claim that, oh, see, here's this major contradiction here. Um, and it, it's, in fact, not a contradiction. Uh, and, and I'll give you an example of, of how this story is just told from a different angle. So let's say all of us go watch a movie together. Let's say we saw Avengers Endgame. And so we're, we're in the vehicle. Let's say we have a vehicle big enough for all of us. And we're driving home. And we're talking about the events of the movie, and every single one of us sort of recalls a different detail of the movie. And um, let's say Katie says, oh, yeah, do you remember when 
Hulk did the snap. And I was like, yeah, dude, that was such a cool moment, right? And we, we discussed it. In that moment, and it happens oftentimes where, you know, you, you forget things like this. You know, Matthew was a witness and he was, he was there for a good part of Jesus' ministry. But even though he was there, um, you know, there's some details can, that can be eluded, that can elude his memory. Just like if you've ever been in the car with your family discussing a, a movie you just witnessed that was an amazing movie. You know, you've been, oh, yeah, that was a great detail. Oh, yeah, that was an awesome part of the movie. Well, my favorite was this, and so on. And so a very, very similar set of passages between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You'll see different details that hide in the Gospels. Um, but these are not in any way restrictions. They're just different sort of, of the length of place. Uh, and there's even this understanding that, um, you know, you know uh, and Luke drew inspiration from Mark's gospel. So it's like, why? If Matthew was there, Mark wasn't even a witness. Well, for the similar token, we just saw the same movie, but I'm going to talk to you about the movie to try and recall different things that just happened. We just saw it. Like, we just left two minutes ago, right? None of us, by, by the grace of God, hopefully don't have any, like, short-term memory loss. But we're still going to discuss this movie to see, well, what just happened? And these different details will arise that some just stick in other people's minds more than others. And so you'll see that clearly. And it just shows just how, you know, the, the gospel is very divine, but God uses our humanity through it. And that's just something so beautiful to witness here. Another thing is the story of the empty tomb um, and how it says the soldiers took the money as they were instructed. This story was circulated among the Jews to present day. Yes, in fact, the empty tomb, it was set out like this. You have, um, there are guards there guarding the tomb. So Easter Sunday, lo and behold, who would have thought the tomb is empty? And so the Jews are quick to say, oh, the disciples stole the body. But the disciples are quick to say, well, that's impossible. There were guards there the whole night. And so the Jews will say, um, well, in fact, um, you bribed the guard. And so keep, keeping that in mind, they're, they're, they're affirming the empty tomb by way of them saying that disciples had to have done something to make the tomb empty. And so that's a beautiful attestation to the fact that, yeah, the tomb was empty. Everybody at the time knew exactly where Jesus was. There were guards. They were guarding the tomb. They had a huge stone boulder. That was a big detail. And you have this, this beautiful sign here. The tomb is empty. And even the Jews are affirming it. Not just what the Bible is saying, but even the, uh, the, the traditions of the Jews at the time in their writings, they'll, they'll have a similar line of thought that's presented here in Matthew's Gospels. Like, oh yeah, well, the, the disciples stole the body. And that, that's what they affirm and they believe. Which is just simply not true because of the, the account of one stone being ridiculously big. But also, you know, there was Roman guards there. So it would have been impossible for, for that to happen because everybody knows where the tomb is. They, they would have known that, okay, these guys are going to try and start some kind of uproar, some kind of something was going to happen. So these are just some beautiful historical things to think about um, whenever people doubt the historicity of the resurrection. One of the greatest proofs that we have is the fact of the empty tomb that's affirmed by, um, by the Jews and, you know, the Gospels alike. And so, all right, now moving on to Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter 1 says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. John the Baptist appeared in the desert, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People of the whole Judean countryside and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they acknowledged their sins. John was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He fed on sin wild. This is what he proclaimed. One mighty night, enough me. I'm not and loosing the throngs. I have been baptized with water. Who baptized you with the Holy Spirit? So a little details here. Um, John is in right? He's clothed in animal's hair, has a leather belt around his waist, and he's eating Um, I don't know if we covered this when we were going over the part of Matthew's gospel. We just didn't. But ultimately, this is a reference to um, John being the new Elijah. Uh, this new Elijah type figure who similarly wore camel's hair. Um, and he would eat such locusts and wild honey as well. And so he shows as this new Elijah figure. He was explicitly identified by Christ in the previous gospel. Um, but not only that, we're just upon John's identity as the Shojbin, or as he for the best man. So John has identified, and you'll see in, in the Gospel of John, okay, so not John Baptist, okay? John the Evangelist crafted his own gospel, and in his gospel, um, John the Baptist makes explicit reference to him being the friend of bridegroom. So keeping that in mind, this rank for the Jewish Christians that Philip uh, has an important role as to bring and prepare the wife, the bride, for the bridegroom. So you can see this um, in the case of Matthew. God himself acts as the role of being that wife, and you guys need to approach Genesis 22. So the Rabbana did hold to the you know, God's destiny for Adam and Eve. And so keeping that in mind, uh, John says to leave the bridegroom where when the time of wedding has come, he calls the people out of Israel to repent in preparation for the Messiah. He baptized them. Um, and so, you know, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preparing the baptism of Jerusalem. People went out to him into the country of Judea. All the people of Jerusalem were baptizing the Jordan. They were baptizing their sin. So this is important because it shows that you know, John the Baptist is the best man. And it means that Jesus is this divine bridegroom. And so the importance of that is that Paul this that the of church of for her. Um, Paul described the Christ on the cross as sort of a, a wedding, uh, or rather a social act of love for the church. And we, the church, we are Christ's bride. And that's something that we often hear within our ethical. However, it's something to really ponder. You know, us being divinely united to Christ on the cross, through baptism, we speak a fraction of that. Outlines are in in heaven, enjoying the vision. Just in the previous gospel, we mentioned that at the end of the age, 
there, there's no there's no wedding or being married to somebody getting married. Um, there's no, no need for such things because you are looking at the love of God and love of Christ, and that's shown through the fact that He is the bridegroom. We are His bride. And as we continue through the story of the Exodus, once you get to the the Messiah, there's some mess of heavenly liturgy that happens in there, and that was the great sign of God letting himself through the Jewish people, through covenantal bond. And, and of course, the last supper is my God in an eternal covenant, right? And so he's using uh, the same language there as used at the time of Moses uh, on the Sinai. And it also draws me idea that we are the bright of Christ, the divine bridegroom, and it's important to ponder over, to be appreciative of, of that God loves us so much, would he suffer us, the fact that um, God has done all these things, just be united to us, you know, he doesn't need us, because he's also but he desires to be able to us. Think of that, it's just... The ultimate... Active love, you know, love is it, it's, you know, to some extent, it, it can be something that we feel ultimately it's a choice. So, this ultimate choice to be a covenant through fighting the cross out of sheer love, out of sheer choice, he wanted to do these things, and that's such a beautiful thing. And it should be something that humbles us. You know, we didn't do anything to deserve it. Well, we could never think to deserve this. But God is just ever so merciful, ever so giving, and ever so loving that he did these things just purely out of choice. And so to get to this night, it happened those days that Jesus came from that series of Galilee, was baptized in Jordan. On cleaning up the water, he saw the heavens being torn open, and the spirit like a dove descended upon him. And it came from the heavens, you are my best son, with whom with you I am pleased. And continues when the spirit drove him out into the desert, and he remained in the desert for forty days, tempted by Satan, who was among wild beasts and angels, ministered to him. After John had been arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaimed the gospel of God. This is the time of fulfillment, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Um one thing to highlight is at the end of the Exodus journey, spoiler alert, um, you have Joshua and the Israelites into the promised land. They're crossing the Jordan River. When they do, um, they're walking on dry land. Similar to how when they exit Egypt, you know, the the is pretty. However, what's, what's beautiful is that you know, the where the Jordan River is, but rather where they step, there's dry land. And so that's where the old Exodus ends, and Jesus being this new Moses figure, he begins his Exodus here at the Jordan River, being baptized by the water in the hearts, but the heavens. And with that, you have the descent of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus, and you have the first sign of the Trinity being shown in, in all its glory. You have the Father who speaks, you have God the Son who is humbly baptized by him, and you have the Holy Spirit who sent the form of him. And so we have Jesus. His temptations being led out to the dead, he's tempted by him. Um, and the beginning of his ministry is the gospel, repent, and the gospel, the king of God is hand, 
ultimately the meaning behind this is that we are expecting, you know, the best going to be happiest with the those of Abraham and all that. Um, but what Jesus is saying in you know, the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of heaven, it's it's not something that's for time, which sometimes yes, it's given now to every one of our hearts. And that's shown more in previous and I think also in the gospel you what comes up, there's be talk about. So continuing verse 16. As he passed by the city of he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting their nets into the sea of She said, Then come to me, and a few fishers of men. Then they abandoned their nets and followed him. He walked a little further and changed to the son of Zebedee and his brother John. They too were in the net. Then he called them, so they left their father Zebedee in the boat alone with hired men and followed him. Then he came to Capernaum, and on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. Were astonished and teaching, for he taught them as one had faith, and not as the scribes. And the synagogue was a man with one conspiracy. He cried out, What have you do with us, Jesus? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus was rebuked and said, Come out of him. The unclean spirit convulsed him, and with a loud cry came out of him. All were amazed and asked one another, What is this? A new teaching of authority? He met even the unclean spirit, and they him. The fame spread everywhere throughout the whole region of Galilee. So a question might arise is, why would Jesus tell him to be quiet? Well, this is early on in his ministry. And so he's trying to keep the messianic secret, the fact that he's the Messiah. But he's revealing it slowly through the fact that he's driving out these unclean spirits. That's showing there's something different about this guy, very clearly. But at the same time, to keep himself from being you know, charged and, and, um, and condemned and killed, he, he commands the unclean spirit to, to be quiet. You know, it's not time to reveal fully um, that he is the Messiah. Because if, if, if he were to reveal it uh, early, you know, the crucifixion would have happened way earlier and all these different things. And so there was, a, you know, God, God has a plan. He has a perfect timing as always. And so this is very clearly seen in this passage here. So it continues in verse 29. On leaving the synagogue, he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law lay sick with a fever. They immediately told him about her. He approached, grasped her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she waited on them. When it was evening after sunset, they brought to him all who were ill or possessed by demons. The whole town was gathered at the door. He cured many who were sick various diseases and drove out many demons, not permitting them to speak because they knew him. Rising very early before dawn, he left and went off to a deserted place where he prayed. Simon, those who were with him, pursued him, and on finding him, said, Everyone is looking for you. He told them, Let us go on to nearby villages, that I may preach there also. For this purpose have I come. So went into their synagogues, preaching and driving out demons throughout the whole of Galilee. A leper came to him, and kneeling down, begged him and said, If you wish, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand, touched him, and said to him, I do will it be made clean. The leprosy left him immediately, and he was made clean. Then warning him sternly, he dismissed him at once. Then he said to them, See that you tell no one nothing, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses prescribed that will be proof for them. The man went away and began to publicize the whole matter. He spread the, he, he spread the report abroad so that it was impossible for Jesus to enter the town openly. Um, he remained outside in deserted places, and people kept coming to him from everywhere. And so this concludes um, the gospel. Uh, are there any questions about what we've read thus far? Uh, I know I haven't asked as far as Exodus goes or Job. Um, but of course, you can always um, 
unmute or type in the chat uh, if you have any questions or if you have anything you'd like to add, feel free as well. Um, I, I always enjoy feedback as far as it goes, like, oh, something stood out to you in the gospel or in the book of Job that you'd like to, you know, share some meditation that you had. Um, please feel free to do so.